0: Hi, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. Welcome to the August Atoms, the forum where we discuss new papers that have just come through online or in print and look at different angles from them. As always, I'm doing this today with Rachel Egbeco, our Senior Editor. Welcome, Rachel.
1: Hi, Nick, and it's always lovely to have these conversations with you senior editor of ADC and I'm a paediatric intensivist in Newcastle at uh, the Great North Children's Hospital in the UK.
0: Thanks. A lot a lot to look at. I mean, there's a strong undertone this month, or a strong thread of observational studies, and I thought we could start by looking at cohort studies. So there's some very rich data um, which is cohort-based in this month's edition, and I guess I felt that this was due um, a reendorsement in some way. It's, it's over the last few years perhaps become a little undervalued. So we'll start with what seems a good entry point with a very tangible issue. So CT scans and mild traumatic brain injury. What did you think of this paper by Sonia Singh and her colleagues in Melbourne, Rachel?
1: I quite liked it, um, Nick. So as you say, it's, it's fairly tangible. Is it? Focuses on the uncertainty of the role of um, CT scans in mild traumatic brain injury. And this is a, a secondary analysis, a planned secondary analysis of um, the Australasian pediatric head injury rule study, mostly f- focuses on cost effectiveness. So the issue is we don't want to miss important intracranial pathology after blunt head injury and we also don't want to unnecessarily expose children to irradiation uh, so that we can reduce the risk of malignancies and in addition we'd like our actions to be cost effective. So in terms of decision making there are different rules there's Chalish, catch and pecan and the PECON or the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network head injury rule shows the highest sensitivity for clinically important traumatic brain injury and miss the least number of patients requiring neurosurgery. So, if you look at the subset of minor head injury, so Glasgow Coma Scale about 14 to 15, you can then substratify to very low risk for clinically important traumatic brain injury, moderate risk and high risk. Now, this study looked at a large number of children, about 18,000, just over 18,000 children, looked at whether there is a cost-effectiveness in doing a CT scan or observing. What I found interesting was that if you look at this category where you don't want to do harm uh, and you look at the cost associated with it, then how do you how do you define cost or cost effectiveness? And this this study looks at a wouldn't say narrow but a, a short-term cost effectiveness, whereas you could make the argument that you could do something more nuanced and the the authors acknowledge that. And what I felt helpful was that you've got the clinical decision rule and then now we've got some evidence as to which categories uh, it might be helpful from a cost effectiveness as well.
0: Yeah, all very interesting and the, the reality is that cost effectiveness is part of any health services equation and applies as much to paediatrics as any other branch of medicine. So very, very topical, very thought-provoking. I thought we could um, visit some health surveillance data next. There are three papers worth discussing, I think, um, and they show all in slightly different ways the importance and usefulness, again, of cohort studies. So Lilia Blisnashka and colleagues at Harvard in Boston, report on their analysis of diet and developments in children aged three years to five years in low-income countries. They pulled demographic and health survey data, so DHS data, which is collected routinely, on over 12,000 children in this age span from 15 low- and middle-income countries. And then they pulled the cross-sectional data from the DHS surveys, and uh, looked at dietary diversity and developmental outcomes. In short, half of the children received adequate stimulation and 17% attended um, ECCE, so Early Child Stimulation Enhancement uh, Programmes. child development was suboptimal and 24%, so a quarter of children, were off track in cognitive development about a third in socio-emotional and nearly 90% in literacy and numeracy. And child diet appeared to be a prominent predictor, let's say. It's a, a strong association. Causality can't, of course, be inferred by this sort of study. But it was a prominent predictive association of only literacy and numeracy development for diet. So... Thought-provoking data, we followed through with an editorial by Marco Kerak at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, who reflects on this study in his editorial, "Dart and Development Beyond a Thousand Days, ensuring children thrive as well as survive, which has now become the topical question. So um, over to you, Rachel, what inferences would you make?
1: So I think there's the questions behind the data. You've got the cohort. It's a routinely collected data, and I use the word routinely, uh, loosely, in the sense that there is no predefined hypothesis. There's a set of questions to be answered, and they're asked in a systematic way over time in a defined uh, population. And then you get the outcomes over over time, over the population this in this instance is about diet and it's not necessarily just about diet in the sense of how many how many calories is it sufficient is there a deficit but also more nuanced as you know what's the diversity of the of the diet and how might there be associations with outcomes and Mark says. In his editorial, and I and I paraphrase, he asks a few questions. He said, "How do we frame those observations?" So the authors use the word "suboptimal" in terms of outcomes, and he said, "So why why is this not a tragedy? Why is this not a tragic loss for families, their communities, and countries, and ultimately to the global society of children not reaching their full potential?" I I thought that was. That, that's important. Then, so you've got the outcome in numbers, and then rather than saying, "Well, that's suboptimal," you might say, "Well, actually, that's tragic, and it's preventable." So, what do we pay? What do we pay attention to? And obviously, the first thousand years absolutely important. Uh, there's a lot going on in terms of development, but it shouldn't be that that is just what we pay attention to. This cohort is slightly older, and he makes the point that there are too our children who require our attention and specifically in terms of diet and what is it that may be able to achieve. And then how do we translate that into the real world? Uh, there's no magic bullet. These are complex issues uh, and, and then we should have the wherewithal to, to find ways of interpreting the data and putting in interventions that are helpful. And it's not just a question of just protein or carbohydrates, but it's it's got a far richer answer to that. And I love the way that he he makes us uh, think. So I was very grateful for that uh, editorial, I must say. So and uh, finally, another paper in this category of, of cohort studies, this time a bit close to home, at least for me, Bradford, which is just south of Newcastle. And John Wright from the Bradford Teaching Hospitals NHS Foundation Trusts asked the question, why is Born in Bradford cohort study important to child health? So, Nick, why is that?
0: Well, lots, lots of reasons. Um, and anyone who's familiar with the Born in Bradford study will know that um, it augments the data from other similar cohort studies uh, like ALSPAC, like the Millennium Cohort Study. Bradford isn't exactly the same as the populations from which the Millennium Cohort and um, ALSPAC were derived. So that in itself is very interesting. It's one of the poorest cities in the UK, but it has a, a very great, rich ethnic background, which makes, in a way, this data even richer. So the city, as a little bit of background for those who aren't familiar with it, it has some of the highest levels of child poverty and ill health in the UK, coupled with lower levels of educational achievement and, and lower levels of healthy life expectancy. So what distinguishes Born and Bradford from the other cohorts? Well, it's partly the focus on change and community empowerment. And that, as far as I know, is something that the other cohorts didn't really address. So it was designed from the start, not just to describe problems, but to provide useful evidence to policymakers and practitioners and ways of partnership working to develop solutions. And that is certainly, again, as far as I know, pretty unique. The research was embedded within routine clinical practice, within local government, within schools and communities, to promote the translation of evidence into practice from conception through childhood and into adulthood. So it was a people-powered research programme working closely with communities to set research priorities and ensure that the outputs are relevant to real-world issues. And that's very topical in many ways. As Over the last few years, there's been a realisation that the best-run randomised control trial in the world isn't going to solve anything without the means to implement it. And implement means anything from... What changes at community level, to school level, to preschool level, to a policy level, at government level? Without all those factors being pulled in the same direction, the results quite possibly will never be translated into the change which the research deserves.
1: I, I just wanted to add that the Born in Bradford study uh, to me is an example of closing the gap between what may have been an elitist way of looking at research to a far more democratised way of uh, researching what's important and then being able to, in a co-produced way, uh, implement the changes that are required. So I'd love to see far more of that.
0: Absolutely, it's a a very admirable project on lots of levels, philosophical as well as epidemiological. So before we sign off, I'd just like to remind you that we publish regular podcasts about some of the best content, not just atoms, of course, uh, phantoms or neonates, Archimedes, um, and, of of course, the Spotlights, which Rachel herself hosts. Um, Platforms include Apple and Spotify, if you want to get it directly through your through your device and we'd like to hear from you so get in touch to our social media channels or leave a review on the adc podcast page on itunes thank you so much for listening have a great summer see you in september bye for now
1: bye from me